Welcome to the Beltway Briefing, the official podcast of Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies, covering the news of the day and constantly evolving state of play in Washington, D.C. Here are your hosts, managing partner of Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies, Howard Schweitzer, and chairman of Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies, Mark Alderman. All right. Well, thank you for joining us yet again. Today is Monday, October 7th, and it's Howard Schweitzer here, and I'm joined by my colleague, Caitlin Martin from our public strategies group. And I have the great privilege of welcoming my good friend and former colleague, Steve Myro here. Steve is the managing partner of Beacon Policy Advisors, which uh, is one of the smartest firms I know, if not the smartest firm when it comes to watching the machinations of your nation's capital. Uh, Steve is a former colleague of mine from the Export-Import Bank and the U.S. Treasury Department, and he follows all things Washington each and every day at a level that's frankly, frankly unparalleled. We're here today to talk about all things trade. As everybody knows who's watching the news, Trump is aggressively pursuing his trade agenda. Steve, let's start with a few true-false questions like we do here at the Beltway Briefing. The first question, trade is a winning political issue for President Trump. True or false? Well, on this one, Howard, I'm going to take the easy answer of saying true and false. It's true in the sense that it's a strong winning issue for him for his political base because they feel he's delivering on a key campaign promise from 2016. But there's a risk here of alienating the all-important independents, which are going to be critical for his victory, just as they were in 2016, specifically in the tipping point states of Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. Okay. But I hear all this stuff um, and, and Caitlin, you and I hear it on the Hill and we hear it talking to our clients about the impact on the agricultural states, which would tend to be more of Trump's base, right? So if, if the agricultural producers are being hurt by the tariffs, why isn't that harmful to him politically? Well, a couple of reasons, Howard. First of all, the even though they're feeling the pain, if you particularly if you look at the farmers, there's a lot of reasons farmers are feeling pain that are even beyond uh, Trump. It has to do with the floods. It has to do with uh, a whole range of geoeconomic issues. Um, but there's no doubt that some of them are feeling pain. But you know, a lot of them are also happy that Trump is fighting for them, and they're just hoping that they come out with a win on, on the other side. The other issue that I think is overlooked is that a lot of farmers uh, also tend to fall into the category of evangelical voters. Mm -hmm. So they're not necessarily always voting with their pocketbook. And there it's not just Trump, but what we like to call the two Mikes, Mike Pompeo and Mike Pence, (laughs) who are, uh, critical players in the administration that help, uh, have, um, uh, President Trump's back, um, even when he stumbles on the two Corinthians with the evangelical voters. Okay. One who might be a future senator for for Kansas, depending on uh, the rumors you hear day in and day out. Absolutely. Pompeo, uh, no doubt, with the increasing attention being played to the impeachment inquiry, um, you'd have to think he, he's, he's looking for a graceful exit. Looking for one, but no way is he leaving the administration right now. He can't. Um, Okay, question number two, speaking of impeachment, topic that everybody is captivated with these days. Impeachment makes it more likely that Trump presses his trade agenda. True or false? Absolutely false. The fact of the matter is, regardless of impeachment, President Trump was going to be pushing this trade agenda hard, um, uh, irrespective of what's going on with impeachment. Does it... um, is it, does it make it more likely that he's got to show that he can put some points on the board, though, that he can get something done? You know, in some ways, Trump thinks he is putting uh, points on the board in trade. If you think about heat, first of all, he loves tariffs. Why does he love tariffs? People in the administration that work closely to him have always told me he loves leverage and trade is the ultimate leverage, number one. Number two, 
he's very frustrated in Washington that he doesn't get to act like a CEO of his own company. He likes to make be a decision maker. He likes to be seen as being strong. Tariffs are an easy thing. Stable genius. A stable genius. He's easy to flip the switch. He can turn tariffs on and off as he so chooses, regardless of what anyone else says. It's very easy for him to message to his base. If you take a step back and look at it, they've actually been quite effective in getting people to the table. Look, I've had a lot of people say to me, and and I'm always cautious on these podcasts about referring to the people the people that we talk to because it's such a subset of a subset of a subset of of the population. But a lot of people that I talk to on both sides of the aisle, Republican and Democrat, say somebody had to take on China. At least he's doing that. So it feels like he's he is kind of getting what he wants at the end of the day and getting he's. People do appreciate that aspect of things. Right. The big problem, we can talk about this later, though, is the second, third, fourth order effects. There's usually a lag effect of these tariffs, and particularly with a lot of the economy looking like it's it's wavering or even in contraction, mm-hmm. we're basically left with one leg of the stool, which is the consumer. And if you start kicking at that, it could be counterproductive for him. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, question number three, true or false? Trump has kept his 2016 promises on trade. I would say mostly true. Yeah. In this sense, um, he's promised uh, to go after China. He promised to get a new deal on USMCA. Uh, he's NAFTA. Pro- uh, right. And he's promised to uh, you know not let the Europeans free ride as much. The Some of the problem here is, though, uh, he's made a lot of promises that just can't be delivered, such as returning all the jobs from abroad back to the United States. But what he's trying to show his base, at least, that he's doing his best to try to push for for those changes. And you have to remember, for Trump, the tweet is the policy. Yeah. Yeah. And look, I, I think this is, Caitlin, I'm interested in your observations. I think this is absolutely a winning political issue for him relative to 2020. I, the he. But again, both sides of the aisle. Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump aren't that far apart on some aspects of trade, just to use an example. And he is doing what he said he was going to do. And it's something that you may not like the outcome. Um, like you said, the impact on the consumer may be significant at the end of the day. But I think a lot of people feel like He's doing he's taking on issues that needed to be taken on, whether that's right or wrong. I think by and large, people. This is one area where he may get the benefit of the doubt more than more than others. I think that's absolutely right. To them, it looks like he's out there fighting, fighting for the people that he said he would fighting for the folks that came out and voted for him. And I think also he sort of blew up the system a little bit in a way. I mean, he he was brought to Washington to shake up the system and the status quo wasn't working. And like you said, people wanted someone that was willing to take on China and others. And, and that's what he's doing. Listen, I think even the other side of the aisle, though, on this issue, this aspect of his agenda, it's in many ways a, a left wing agenda. And I think some of the things that Bernie Sanders was saying in the 2016 election are things that Donald Trump is taking on. So this this is the one place where I think people on the Democratic side of the aisle, they may not do it very loudly, but they give him a little bit of a nod. So a few points here. First of all, it's not so much left right as I would say it's populist. And so, you know, I always joke that in Pac-Man, if you went so far out the right door, you came in on the left-hand side. Um, that that's what that's exactly. what they're doing. Number one. Number two is the fact that uh, what you're talking about is the forgotten man, Caitlin. That this is, you know, it's very Steve Bannon-esque, but this is what uh, Trump always comes back to. He's he's fighting for all the forgotten men and women out there. This all makes sense, but we got to be careful not to conflate. China and perhaps even Mexico 
with the rest of the trade issues. Because I think there's a lot of other trade issues where people are saying, I'm not so sure why he's spending so much time on that. Shouldn't he be back focused over there, say on China? What I've warned clients is the danger with however far Trump goes on these tariffs, even if he's a one-term president, it's gonna be very hard for the next president to roll those tariffs back because it's a very bipartisan issue, you're right, to be be tough on China. And it's going to be hard to, even if you had a moderate like Biden come in, um, uh, which is looking less likely as nominee, but say he was the nominee and he became president, he can't day one turn these off. He's going to politically have to come to a deal with China, which in this environment is getting getting more difficult. The last piece I would say, though, is... Everyone might be egging this on, but if the economy goes south, and this is what a lot of people are trying to warn him, that if he goes too hard, too fast on the on the trade wars, that he will pull the rug out from the economy as it's softening. Or the market, at least. And well, for Trump, the market is the economy. In fact, for Trump, a weighted average of 30 companies, AKA the Dow Jones Industrial <laughs> Average, is the singular proxy for the entire economy. Yeah. And so, and we've heard this from numerous of his advisors uh, that they, you know, day in, day out, he regularly asks, How, how's the market going? When he says, how's the market going? He's asking about, about the, Dow. Da- the Dow. Got it. And, you know, that doesn't take into account the services economy, which is way dwarfs the manufacturing economy. So uh, from that perspective, he could easily get caught behind the power curve Mm -hmm. if he pushes this too hard, too fast. So let's drill down now on each of the um, specific areas where he's pressing his trade agenda, China, Mexico slash Canada and the EU. But but before we do that, quickly touch on Steve, who, who the key players are in the administration when it comes to trade? Obviously, you and I know from our time in government that um, the staff does a lot of the work, but the fact of the matter is that uh, you got some some key people at the top driving the, driving, the tra- driving the trade agenda. Let's touch on each of them and the perspective from which they come at the issue, then we can drill down on the particulars. Yeah, first and foremost, you have to talk about Bob Lighthizer. Um, this guy came up through the Reagan administration. U.S. trade rep. U.S. trade rep. He uh, very focused on China. He, he falls into the what we call the hawk camp on China. And he, uh, you know, right now we see him as really the one looking to stiffen Trump's backbone and not take you know, what would be perceived by many as a weak deal. He's also, though, spending an incredible amount of time on USMCA, the new NAFTA, with uh, working with the Democrats on the Hill, who give him uh, actually a lot of credit for for being a, a good faith negotiator. Whether or not he's able to deliver everything they need in the end is another question. Uh, that's and he spent a lot of his time also on uh, the recently signed Japanese mini deal, and he was able to deliver some early wins. Particularly particularly in the the reaching the US MCA with Mexico and Canada so he earned Trump's respect in that regard so he's a big player to 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 his right in the hawkish sense is Peter Navarro people give this guy way too much credit in many respects uh people think that he has tremendous power because he's a lot of what he says is what uh, uh, is very synonymous with what's coming out of Trump's mouth. However, we don't think that at Beacon that Navarro's influencing Trump so much as that he really is Trump's id. This is what Navarro believes. So he's just reflecting what is Trump's own natural predisposition. Mm-hmm. Well, that makes sense. I've been in to, to see him and I mean, he's, he's, a, he's a serious guy. Um, he's got his his philosophy. It's I don't know that at the end of the day he is um, he's one of many people who have the ear of the president on this issue. Many people, and one, let's talk about more. Wilbur Ross, um, Secretary of Commerce, has has a role. 
he has a role when he's awake. Um, <laughs> he, I think Trump generally keeps him around because he's liked him for a long time. But a lot of people say that tr Trump goes off when, when Wilbur's not around saying, you know, I don't know what happened to this guy. He, he, he's way past his prime. Um, in fact, I was speaking with a CNBC reporter the day the news came out about Bolton being fired. And she said uh, she could have sworn that when she heard someone's fired that it was going to be Wilbur mm. Ross, not Bolton. So um, if he was to leave, uh, uh, I don't think it would surprise many people in this town. On the other hand, here's someone that cares about his perception uh, to the outside world as much as or almost as much as if it's possible as the president himself. Yeah. So he's going to do everything he can to make sure he's not shown a, uh, a, a an ungraceful exit. I'm not sure that's possible, but okay. Yeah. Um, Mnuchin, a treasury, secretary of the treasury, so, our former stomping grounds. Right. So Mnuchin is the head of what we call the globalists. This is the counterweight to the Hawks. And, you know, if I was throwing my own personal biases out there, this would be the camp that I would fall in, although not exactly excited that Mnuchin is the standard bearer for this camp. But to be honest, I think it's a tough spot for anyone. Um, you know, a lot of times what you look at in Washington are what are people's goals when they come in, their legacy. And, you know, every major player has two or three things that they want to get done. Um, so the globalists would hope that in some ways that Mnuchin's legacy is to try to sand the edges off the hawkish side of the, of, of the trade war. Uh, unfortunately, I think Mnuchin's primary and only objective is to remain Secretary of the Treasury, so much so that sometimes we joke that he's more the uh, sycophant of the Treasury than the, the, the Secretary <laughs> of the Treasury. But that um, I have to give him credit, though, because there are times that when it just looked like the Hawks were about to have a big win, that that combined with a market reaction, that he was able to walk Trump off the, off the ledge and, and push it back. The fact that it's taken this far to get to some of the, the biggest tariff uh, deadlines c uh, coming up, uh, in part, you have to give Mnuchin a little bit of credit for dragging that out. Larry Kudlow. Larry Kudlow, the National Economic Council. Right, he is basically playing the role of cheerleader now. Every time the the Dow drops more than one percent, Larry sent out uh, down to the end of the driveway at the White House to go before the cameras and and try to be show his optimistic spirit and and perk the markets up. But um, he's much more of a spokesman than he is a, a, a policymaker. Yeah, Andrew Olmem, who we used to work with when we were in government, he was a senior uh, staffer for Shelby on the banking committee, is Larry's deputy, and Andrew effectively runs the NEC day-to-day -day and is, is, has the policy pen there. Um, Jared Kushner. Jared Kushner is, is critical in, in the sense that most foreign governments and leaders view him as a uh, back-channel conduit to the president to play a moderating role. Whether he's able to play that role at times uh, isn't necessarily clear. But for example, you know, once USMCA got uh, agreed to, um, the Mexicans brought Kushner down to Mexico and gave him a, a big national award just because they the the personal relationship that they've been able to forge through him. You have to remember, if you go back to the beginning of the administration, there really wasn't anyone around. Mm -hmm. And uh, even though Rex Tillerson came in as Secretary of State, he never really gelled into that role. So a lot of that's people- a, That's a fair statement. That's Steve. a fair statement, <laughs> understatement. That, that Side note, that feels like a century ago. It does. But anyway, I digress. And what you have, it you had Steve Bannon and and uh, uh, Stephen Miller kind of unchained. And uh, there was, you know, th this was the period of American carnage. 
and uh, people were looking for uh, a, a, a safe place to go uh, get a message to the president. Jerry Kushner loved playing that role, I think. I, th- I think he likes feeling important. Yep. Okay, so with all of that background lead, let's drill down on China, Mexico, Canada, and the EU. Let's start with China. That's obviously where the bulk of the attention is nowadays. It's where the bulk of the market interest is. Nowadays, it's where the bulk of the economic impact is. So let's talk China. Well, I would say bulk of the economic impact is actually Mexico, Canada. Okay. But in terms of, you're right, when I go in and talk to my clients who are all institutional investors for the most part, when they say we want to talk trade, what they really mean is they want to talk China. Yeah. Um, So let's start there. So, and why, well, why is that? Why, if, if the bulk of the dollars are... USMCA, Mexico, Canada, then why are why is the attention on China? That's as good a place to start as any. Well, I think once they got the USMCA, that took the fight away from between the US and Mexico and Canada, and it really made it between the White House and the Democrats in Congress. Mm-hmm. So it, it took it from the, the cross-border context and, and brought it to the domestic context, which put investors more at ease. But if you were talking auto tariffs and you were talking about including Mexico and Canada in the auto tariffs, that would have sent major, major shockwaves through uh, uh, the economy and, and the markets. Not that long ago that you and I were at the Treasury Department figuring out how to save the auto industry at the end of the Bush administration. So we, we remember it well. So, all right, China. What's going on with China? What has the president and the administration, what have they done to date and what lies ahead? So it depends who in the administration you talk to. In the Hawks camp, they see this as a true existential threat. And they are looking uh, to various degrees to a true decoupling with China. Uh, I would argue. What does that mean? That means separating the two economies, separating their supply lines. Um, you know, they look at a for a model back to the Cold War between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, where you functionally had two separate economies in the world. This doesn't make sense to me in a world where you already have the two largest economies rather intertwined Mm -hmm. to when i try to explain to people it's it sounds like you're trying to do brain surgery by untangling the left side of the brain from the right right side of the brain and 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 carefully cutting all the the neurons that connect them um which i don't think is possible but could have some serious repercussions along the way and i think that's what we're about to see in the world is that you're going. You're not. You're not going to get decoupling, but that's not going to stop people from attempting decoupling on both sides. And at the result is going to be quite messy. With particularly a lot of the people in the rest of the world trying to play both sides. Well, look, it is having an effect, and the president has announced a series of tariffs on goods coming from China, with implementation dates, you know, months months out. Right before the holidays now. And there are a couple that lie ahead between now and the end of the year. Um, and it's having an effect. I, I, I've talked to clients who are making their purchasing decisions. They're shifting. Maybe they're buying from China now, but they wanna, they're want to. they going to shift to buy from Vietnam. I had a client tell me that. A lot of um, inventory has been pulled forward. Right. So it, it is having an impact. It may be a net negative from a policy point of view, uh, time will tell. But but companies are shifting their purchasing decisions as a result. So this is not. Paul, you're also seeing significantly reduced capital expenditures because of all the uncertainty it's producing. So it, it it's definitely having an effect. That that's my point is that you're not going to have full decoupling, but the attempt to have decoupling, you're going to make partial headway, and it's gonna it's gonna cause a serious churn in the meantime. But if you look at what's going on right now, part of the problem, I believe, is that uh, President Xi in China, Chairman Xi, whatever you want to call him, he's decided 
and it, it's not so much based on the U.S.-China relationship, from what I understand, but it really comes back to uh, the spring and when Trump decided on the immigration issue to go back at Mexico and threaten new tariffs, even though they had signed the USMCA. Mm -hmm. That was kind of the last straw for, for Xi in the sense that he decided at that point that he really can't trust uh, uh, Trump and that, you know, it's ironic in many ways, the U.S. is giving China a taste of their own medicine, because when we were in government, I remember around the U.S. Uh, China strategic economic dialogue where we were trying to cut deals with with China, it was always very hard to understand what they wanted. Now, the Chinese are being very clear about what they want, but they can't figure out what Trump wants. And those that, quote unquote, speak for Trump really can't speak for Trump because what they say, may, you know, he may turn on the dime. Change their mind. So Steve, is, that, is that all part of the strategy, though? No, I, I don't. I think this is a lot of people like to think that Trump is playing, uh, you know, five dimensional chess. And, and, and instead, what he's really doing is just eating the chess pieces. And if you uh, if you look at where we are now, I think he he saw after Q4 of last year, you had a major market sell off in part due to China and part to fears uh, about recession. And if you go to uh, I think it was February, you had uh, Lighthizer in his office with the major Chinese negotiator, Lu Ha. And he was basically yelling at Lighthizer to get him a deal that a, that an MOU or an LOI wasn't good enough. As soon as the markets roared back, the pressure came off. And then you got to May and you had this this deal that the U.S. thought they were close to. Mnuchin said at one point they were 90 percent of the way there. That doesn't mean that the Chinese saw that as being there. And it's very common. We saw this when we were in government. Chinese walk up to a line and then they walk back. And the uh, Trump administration has been very f caught on their heels. They're still to this day, you heard Kudlow mention it last week, they're still hoping that they can get back to the May agreement. The May agreement was never an agreement and it's so far gone. What the Chinese are offering right now regardless of the other noise, whether it's about Taiwan or Hong Kong or whatever. Yeah, what do they want? The only thing that I think the Chinese will take at this point is a deal where they buy a bunch of ag products. They particularly need pork. Um, they found some alternative buyers for soybeans, but I think they'd be happy to take them if it helps the deal. And in response, they want a rollback on tariffs. And if you could get that deal- All of the tariffs, some of the tariffs? Unclear. But I think if you could get that deal, it's not going to be sufficient, I think, to simply not impose the upcoming tariffs. Mm -hmm. I think it has to include a rollback of some of the existing tariffs. And there's just no way politically Trump could take that deal right now. He's put himself in such a box. And I think the markets convinced themselves investors have convinced himself that he needs this politically for re-election. That's not the way he sees it. So if you look at what's coming up just this week, Luha's in town. Everyone's hoping for the prospects for some type of mini deal this week. I'm skeptical. If I'm right, that means next week, October 15th, we get a new batch of tariffs. These tariffs aren't as important because you're talking about going from 25% to 30% on a bunch of goods that have probably already been priced out of the country. So then everyone's gonna turn their attention probably to mid-November. You have the ASEAN, but then the more likely the APEC meeting, I think it's November July, 16th right? and 17th, yeah. which is when there's been no one confirmed, but you, you see the prospects for both Xi and Trump showing up there. And, and being in a room. I think if they do, there might be some polite head nodding and then they move on. They both have a tremendous amount of internal political pressure, I, I believe. I Absolutely. Mean, Xi with Hong Kong and I guess Taiwan to some extent. Um, well, for it, him, it's a pressure not to take a deal. Right, he can't look weak. Exactly.
And I mean, this what's going on in Hong Kong may not look like the biggest deal to us. It's a huge deal for him. It's a huge deal in terms of Taiwan. It's a huge deal in terms of Hong Kong. Way more important than the trade relationship with the U.S. Chinese domestic politics are a huge factor in how they operate globally. It just it's just a fact. Um, but so then so you have the ASEAN meeting. Let's assume nothing gets done there. The real question everyone's going to be asking themselves is December 15th. You have a whole new set of tariffs, and this is the first time you're hitting consumer goods. This is why they were pushed back to December 15th, because so many retailers on the American side were calling the White House, calling the president, saying, you will be the Grinch who stole Christmas. And so he was willing to push them back. The real question for me is what happens with the December 15th tariffs. I'm not saying that they can get a deal. I'm saying is, I think we're he- we're heading for a gathering storm in the equity markets. Uh, next week, October 15th, same day that tariffs come on, Congress comes back from two weeks on recess. An so impeachment inquiry is going to start kicking up to, a, 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 to another gear. October 31st, even though the consensus seems to be that uh, Brexit is going to be delayed, it's going to take up until you know the 11th hour for that to happen. So the second half of October, you have a whole gathering storm of policy catalysts that's that just increasing uncertainty for the business community and the financial markets. If the China uncertainty begins to uh, roll over into November and you start approaching December 15th, and right now, if you're looking at the economy, people are saying, okay, we're, we're in a slowing mode. We're going from somewhere in the 2% GDP to probably next year something in the in the 1% range. But the good news is the consumer remains strong, employment market, uh, uh, it, it's strong if not, robust. Ro- if, if not overly robust. Yeah. And you have 70% of the economy relies on the consumer. But if you put in those tariffs on December 15th, it looks like President Trump is starting to kick at the last leg of the stool of the economy. And it probably will take at least six months for those uh, tariffs to flow through to the economy. So you're talking about uh, the economy softening even more in the summer before <laughs> the November elections. He's but, boxing himself in. But the mar- And that's what investors think. That's right. what equity investors think. They think this is impossible because he has to see that and he has to manufacture a win. The problem is a lot of people in the White House surrounding Trump and himself believe that China has it worse. They're looking at this as a win-lose dynamic and they view it as all we have to do is pressure China a little bit more and she's gonna crack. The problem is the Chinese do not see it as a win-lose dynamic. They see it as a relative lose-lose dynamic. And when you're the president for life and the guy you're going up has a tough re-election about a year from now, time is on your side. For sure. Okay. Well, that's very, very interesting and insightful. Okay. Let's shift to um, North America. The NAFTA replacement, USMCA. There's um, certainly a view that this is something that could get done. Talk to us a little bit about about where that stands. As you mentioned earlier, it's sitting with Congress at this point. Mexico and Canada have agreed to a deal with the U.S., but time will tell whether it actually is able to get through the United States Congress. Where is USMCA? The the irony is, I think impeachment has perhaps helped the prospects. I don't think it necessarily gets it done. But uh, if we were having this conversation a few weeks ago, I would have been more bearish than I am on USMCA because I would have said Nancy Pelosi, and although it sits with Congress, I would say it really sits with Nancy Pelosi. House Democrats, yeah. And and her alone to make that decision. And what she's going to decide, what what originally I was thinking was she's not going to allow this to go forward unless she got something else 
she's she's the ultimate horse trader and she does really well in making those trades in this town so the question is what was she going to try to get in return and i was just skeptical that the trump administration the white house would be willing to give it to her i think we've seen the tune change a little bit with impeachment this is an opportunity for her to try to show that she'll walk and chew gum however that doesn't necessarily get across the goal line. I think in many ways, she's looking at USMCA just as she did impeachment. Maybe a little skeptical, but it really comes down to her caucus because her decision on impeachment was once you had the Ukraine scandal and a lot of what we call the majority makers come off the fence, the people who were not, who, who gave her the majority, who came from the Trump won districts in the midterm elections and they weren't for impeachment when they were relitigating 2016 in Russia, but now that this is an ongoing issue and a, a pattern problem, that they jumped uh, off the fence. And so once she had 218, she decided it was more of a risk not to do impeachment than it was to pursue the impeachment inquiry. This is, I think, where she's going to be on the USMCA. Labor still isn't backing this deal. Yeah. And it's a, there's a lot of enforcement questions today or tomorrow. We have a lot of uh, a handful of Democrats actually heading down to Mexico to talk to the Mexicans to, uh, to get a better understanding about the enforceability and how much money Trump uh, Mexico is going to put against the the enforceability. So I think it's possible. I won't be surprised if it gets done, but I'm not quite as bullish as everyone else is in this town that that's essentially a done deal. So what's the timing? Let's talk about the timing on USMCA. Caitlin, I uh, wandered by your office last week and she and Adam Schiff were holding a press conference about impeachment and she was begging for questions on the USMCA. Does anyone have questions on USMCA? Yeah, she wanted to, to lead with that and, and before getting into the impeachment so questions that, to really show that she's up there trying to get things done. Yeah, that's telling. So. Timing. There's a lot of false deadlines in this town. People say you have to get done this year. People are saying it has to get done this month. I, I don't think there is any set deadline. I think they would like to get it done this year. Um, there's nothing. There's that an election coming up in Canada. If Canada were to change their government, the U.S. might be forced to go back and renegotiate the agreement with the Canadians. So that's one issue on the horizon. I think there's a lot of issues and it gets harder the longer it goes on, no mm -hmm. doubt. But I think if the Democrats want to, if Nancy Pelosi wants to move this forward at some point, she, you know, they, they've known what these issues have been for a long time. So, um, and it's a finite set of issues, but I think it's, it's gonna, it, as long as it splits her caucus, she's not gonna be able to move it forward. So they, they have to work through these issues. And the question is, I don't think you have to open the agreement. You can always do these things through side letters. They have, you know, it's a question of, are they trying to make a point or are they trying to make a difference? So, right. And if there is a President Warren, let's just say elected in 2020, but the Senate remains in Republican hands, I can assure you, that President Warren is not going to successfully renegotiate NAFTA and get that through a Republican Congress. No, so, they'll, they'll stick with NAFTA. Right. So, if, Although she's not a fan of NAFTA either. Right. So if they want to get something done on the Democratic side of the aisle, ironically, now is their chance because Trump will make the Senate Republicans go along with him. That isn't going to happen if the White House flips. Uh, yeah, I think the problem is there's a reasonable number of Democrats who aren't convinced that USMCA is better than NAFTA. Okay. Uh, another front of the multi-front trade war is the European Union. It's interesting. People think of Europe as our, our great ally, but Trump has really taken Europe to task in his administration, whether through NATO or, or now trade. What's going on with the EU and yeah. why does it matter? Yeah, it's absolutely right. In fact, if you speak to people in Trump's orbit in the administration, they'll parrot the line that uh, you know, U Europeans were great 
allies in the past, but now they're a bunch of free riders and freeloaders. And Trump regularly says many ways uh, Europe is worse than China. And I think one of the problems Trump has with Europe, uh, quite frankly, is and it's why he deals well with the autocratic regimes is he's used from the business world to just being able to get in the room with a, another decision maker and working out an agreement on you know one piece of paper and handing it over to the lawyers to paper. And uh, with the EU, you know, it's the old Henry Kissinger line. It's, you know, who do you call when, when, you, when you have an issue when, when you have government by committee? And there's in the EU negotiations, there they've been at an impasse for months now. Early on, you had uh, the threat of the auto tariffs after the imposition of the 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 steel and aluminum tariffs, which everyone kind of forgets about. And uh, what you had was just a kind of serendipitous moment for the Europeans. You had the, the, the head of the EU uh, come over to the US uh, last summer, and it was the same day that, uh, or the day after Trump had announced a whole bunch of aid for the farmers that didn't sit well with the Republicans. So we had a whole bunch of Republican senators over at the White House waiting to meet with him. And this was right as he was meeting with the Europeans. And he said to uh, EU president, uh, why don't we, you know, why don't we get a deal done right here and we can go out there to the Rose Garden and announce it. And uh, they kept, he kept bringing up, you know, the, the US side kept bringing up, well, we need to have you, the purchase of agricultural products in there. But, uh, Trump kept bringing up farmers. So Europeans quite smartly said, well, why don't we just put in this agreement that, you know, support for the farmers and uh, it left agriculture out of it. So it was so hasty that no one, they didn't even have anything set up in the Rose Garden. They had to run around and set up a bunch of chairs and Trump made sure all the Republican senators were brought out to hear this. And it was a way for him to placate them. But what it was great for the Europeans was it gave a pause to the uh, the auto tariff fight. And the problem is the negotiations never got off the ground after that because you got into this fight over agriculture versus farmers. The French are never going to allow their agricultural markets to be opened up the way the U.S. wants them. And they could care less about auto tariffs because they're not the ones producing the cars. The Germans are. Mm. And the Germans want a deal because they want to protect them. But you need unanimous consent. So there's no deal to be had. And this has been the impasse all along. So when we came down to the next decision on the auto tariffs, which is self-created, we're now at this mid-November deadline. So just, I wanna make sure I understand. So there is a disconnect between, so you have autos versus ag, and there is a disconnect between the markets that are impacted negatively by our imposition of tariffs on autos and auto parts versus the markets in Europe that we need to open up to agriculture. Exactly, and and people talk about this auto issue, but what we try to explain to them, with no deal in China, and you saw this recently with Japan, Trump, you, you have this increasingly uh, building pile of rotting soybeans here in the United States. And Trump's looking, you know, he's a salesman at heart, and he's looking for a way to sell his soybeans. And just brand them Trump soybeans. Exactly, like Trump good. steaks. And if you, if the Chinese aren't going to buy it, he wants the Japanese to buy it. He wants the Europeans to buy it. He wants anyone and their brothers to buy it. And the problem is the French, that's a no-go for the French. So that is, you not. it's not a question of they won't give it to them in the negotiations. It's that they won't even allow that sector to be included in negotiations. So the negotiations, we've said they've never, they haven't been negotiating. They've been negotiating about negotiating mm -hmm. for a year. And Pompeo recently went over to Brussels because the view is the end of uh, this month, you're getting a new 
commission supposedly in the EU. The problem is, and they, they the U.S. side was looking, the Trump administration was hoping they'd get a reset, and they you know uh, which would work about as well as the Russia reset from past because this whole new team at the commission looks a lot like the former team, and they've already made pretty clear. So just in the last few days, you had the announcement of the new tariffs related to Airbus, Airbus, but really hitting a whole bunch of consumer goods. And this is because for Trump, you know, back when we were in government, Howard, we always kind of complained at times that, you know, the right arm didn't care what the left arm was doing because these were all in different silos. For Trump, it's one big board, happens to be a checkers board and not a chess board. But for him, he's looking for leverage, like we talked about, anywhere he can get. And tariffs, he's hoping that those tariffs will help put pressure on the EU to eventually negotiate on agriculture. They won't. They can't. They can't because it's government by committee. Exactly. It's just impossible. So therefore, uh, you know, whether we get the auto tariffs in mid-November or some point thereafter, it seems only inevitable that he's going to hit them with them because he's not getting what he wants. Okay, so where does all this come down? I mean, you've got a multi-front trade war. China, the EU, our neighbors to the north and south. Where does all this land? Well, it you know, everyone in Washington likes to debate who's going to be the Democratic candidate and whether that is better or worse for Trump. But I think when you get outside Washington, it, it, it's not as imp- it's important to the candidate, but way more important is what's the economy look like a, a year or so from now, or even nine months from now, really in the in the in the summer going into the election. And all of this seems to be pointing in the direction of hurting the economy. The question is, how much? Well, and, and and where does it land in the sense that what is the, let's say he loses next year, what does the next person do with the agenda? It's like we've seen with actual war, you the next person inherits it. It's not that easy to get out of it. And I don't see it being either that easy to get out of these trade wars or even necessarily the desire to get out of the trade wars. Like I said earlier, I think and well, you I said the Pac-Man analogy, like I think come it, out the left, you go to the right. I think you have to break it down into which area you're dealing with for something like Europe. I, I think if a Democrat took office, I think they're going to spend a lot of time trying to patch up the relationship, yeah. although. Um, you know, th- there will always be the question there left in the Europeans' minds and any allies' mind of, uh, you know, what happens if someone like Trump returns again. Mm-hmm. So th- they're always going to have a question mark in the back of their heads now. Um, when it comes to China, though, you're absolutely right. There's this, this is not a right or left issue, particularly if you had someone like Warren. But I think even if you had a moderate like Biden as the next president, if Trump were to lose, it would be very hard for the next president to roll back any tariffs that Trump applies because there is a general agreement in Washington to get tough on China. Okay, so let's wrap up by talking about the stock market or the markets, because I think it's not just the stock market, it's the stock market and the bond market. Um, That seems to be, and you referred to it earlier, the, the one barometer that Trump looks to that influences decision making on, on the economy. So, um, what else is influencing his decision making, if, if anything, around around trade? And talk to us about the markets. Sure. So I believe that when we talk about, like I said, it's not even the stock market. It's the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Okay. So weighted average, 30 companies. This is, you talk to enough people in the administration. This is the one quantitative measure that he generally used as a barometer for the entire economy. And... If the and it's been pretty, it's been strong. great. I mean, I mean, up thirty percent since his election. It's been fl- relatively flat, with a lot of uh, up and downs between now and a year ago, when the trade war really got into full blast. 
But if you go all the way back to the the beginning, sure. Um, but I think when you're talking about in terms of trade, it really hasn't gone anywhere since the trade wars right. have, have really you know, come front and center. And the question is, a lot of the sugar hive and the tax cuts seems to be wearing off and it takes a lag for you to feel the impacts of tariffs. So, you know, where is this heading going forward? You, you know, there's a, there's a tale of two cities, if you will, or two economies in, in, in the markets. The equity markets would tell you that they're optimistic about where things are, are headed and the credit markets are much more pessimistic. In the equity markets, why are they optimistic? Well, it basically comes down to two factors. One I would call the Trump put, and the second one I'll call the Fed put. The Trump put is this belief by equity investors. I believe they're overpricing the prospects of even a mini deal with the Chinese because they believe Trump himself would not put himself in a position that would hurt his reelection chances, that by further prosecuting the, the trade war against China and not at least hitting a detente, if not de-escalation, will lead to economic slowdown and will therefore hurt his chances of re-election. So they believe that he will find a way to manufacture a win and pause the trade war with China. Uh, I'm skeptical, but you know I think that the key barometer to watch there is what happens with the December 15th tariffs. And even if they don't go into effect December 15th, you know what happens with them going forward? Because I think that by the end of the year is where the uncertainty is going to be. On um, the, 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 the backup point here, though, is if China's not going well and you're not going to get in the Trump put fails, there's the fail safe of the Fed put. If Trump isn't going to help them out, they're hoping Powell will. And what they're looking for is that if the economy starts faltering because of the continued prosecution of the trade wars, that the Fed will continue to lower interest rates. The questions I have there are, you're already seeing some disconnects within the Fed itself, and can Powell keep enough people on board, or does he even agree with keeping enough people on board? I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that Powell is impacted by Trump's pressure. Rhetoric, yeah. I mean, we worked with tons of people from the Fed when we were uh, at Treasury on TARP. And, you know, you run into them from time to time. They're not going to tell you, obviously, anything about the future of the Fed, but they'll tell you to, to, the, to the Fed and to Powell and to the staff, everything Trump says is noise. His, it doesn't make it less likely. It doesn't make it more likely. It's truly data dependent. The problem is you have differing data right now. And it, you know different parts of the economy are doing better or worse. So it's hard to decide. And the second point simply is I'm not sure that the Fed lowering interest rate is a cure-all for all parts of the economy. So uh, you know I think relying on the Fed as a panacea is an oversimplification of the issue. Well, Steve, thank you so much. This has been incredibly insightful, I think, for anybody that wants to understand trade in in Washington, the Trump agenda, where things stand. This has been a phenomenal discussion. We thank you so much for joining us. Steve Myro from Beacon Policy Advisors, and we'd love to have you back in the coming months as the issue evolves. And thanks so much. Look forward to it. Thank you for listening to the Beltway Briefing. To learn more about the Beltway Briefing or Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies, please visit our website at copublicstrategies.com.